This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Jeremy Roll. Jeremy started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 60 opportunities across more than a billion dollars worth of real estate and business assets. As founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,500 investors who seek passive cash flow and investments in real estate and businesses. Jeremy is also the co-founder of Four Investors by Investors, or FIBI, a nonprofit organization that was launched in 2007 with the goal of facilitating network and uh, learning among real estate investors in a strict no-sales pitch environment. FIBI is now the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 30,000 members. Jeremy has an MBA from the Wharton School and is an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the U.S. Jeremy, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I just want to thank everyone who's listening. I hope this is helpful for everyone who's listening. Excellent. Uh, is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about yourself? Uh, I don't remember if I mentioned I'm from Montreal, but I'm originally from Canada. Um, and I grew up there uh, in Montreal, and I left Canada in 98 to come to the U.S. So I lived about half my life in Canada, half my life in the U.S., um, but that's pretty much about it. Okay, very good. Yeah, I think the, the real estate investment opportunities are just better in the U.S. than Canada. Uh, you know. <laughs> it's completely, well, the whole economy, it's just completely incomparable. The scale of, of this country and the opportunities here are just in a different, you know, whole different realm than in Canada. Canada's a great place, but from an economic perspective, different story. Indeed, indeed. So how did you get started with real estate investing? So I was um, working in the corporate world back in 2001, 2002, and I was actually working at Disney headquarters at the time in, in Burbank in Los Angeles. And after the dot-com crash, um, which for those of you who are old enough to remember when the you know tech stocks plummeted, I just got sick and tired of two things with the stock market, just in my general re retirement account um, strategy. Number one was the volatility. So the stock market going up down 30% a year just was not the right fit for me. I'm a really low risk, slow and steady guy. And that volatility was not a good fit for me. And the other thing even more so was the lack of predictability. So like not knowing where my retirement account would be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and that lack of predictability was the most concerning to me and just did not mesh with my own personality and what I was looking for. So I looked at different ways to invest, came across uh, kind of passive opportunities and typical syndications where they're grouping a lot of people together. And I eventually started to dip my toe into um, passive real estate starting in early 2002, I think it was February, 2002. Um, and that's how I got started. And I eventually rotated all my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow, which eventually got me uh, out of the corporate world. So my whole focus for over 20 years now has been more predictable, uh, lower risk passive cash flow in response to the lack of predictability that I was really bothered by in the stock market. Okay. And then what does your passive portfolio look like now? Uh, it's just, um, I'm hyper diversified. Uh, I'm in both real estate and non-real estate type opportunities. It's 99% cash flow focus, 1% startup. I have a handful of like maybe 10 startups and I'm not looking for those. They're just like, I have to make a bet on somebody I know who also has a business model that interests me, but I'm not proactively a member of any angel groups or whatever. Um, so most of my focus, almost all my focus is on uh, low risk passive cash flow. Um, I um, have invested across many states in the US. I have a little bit uh, still of lingering investments in Canada that I, that I made uh, a number of years ago. Most of it's all in the US. Um, I'm a very big fan of diversification, uh, both 
within a specific single property, as well as just within a portfolio. I'm a little hyper diversified. Um, it's because I do it full time for over 20 years. So I'm in over 60 LLCs actively right now, been over 150 to 200 in the past 20 plus years. Um, and so my portfolio just looks like literally all in on passive cash flow because I have not owned stocks since 2007. So over 15 years, um, it's all passive cash flow focused. And I just try to, to maximize that. Yeah, I hear you. My stock portfolio is doing terribly right now. So <laughs> just to... Well, you know, you've done very well, though, for like, you know, that's the funny thing is like, I'm, you know, many people can argue I'm not properly diversified because I didn't own stocks. I didn't benefit from the run up. Um, and uh, I benefited from other run ups that still did very well. Right. So there is something to be said for stocks and that type of diversification, too, for sure. And then for your real estate investments, what kind of deals do you invest in? I typically invest in what I what I call non-institutional deals. So single property value might be 50 to $30 million, just as a general comment. It could be higher, it could be lower. Um, fund sizes are sometimes 25 to 100 million plus. They really vary across the board. Um, but what I do is I target um, kind of what I call a class B asset, which kind of a middle ground asset in an A minus or B plus market. And I invest outside of very volatile markets. So outside of California in general, the prices go up and down a lot because that's that volatility that I was trying to get away from. So I don't invest where I live, which is actually, I don't invest in LA, don't invest in San Francisco, don't invest in New York City, don't invest in Miami. They tend to go up and down a lot. And I tend to look for more stabilized markets, um, you know, higher job growth where the migration is happening, population moving to that area. Because um, again, I just want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow and not much has changed. I mean, that's truly my goal. So when I target a real estate investment, it's typically going to be stabilized, um, may have some minor value add upside. Um, that's that's actually optional. Um, I actually change my value add strategy depending where we are in the cycle. And um, I typically I'm going into something that's 80 to 100 percent occupied. There are exceptions. But because of that, that's how you know the cash flow is already existing and starting right away because I live off the cash flow. So every dollar that I put out as an investment, you know, if I don't put it into cash flow, I'm basically falling behind in my perspective, you know, to to an extent, just because I need to maximize my cash flow to live off of it, have an additional cushion beyond that. And then are these uh, primarily multifamily properties? Oh, no, no, it's all over the board. Um, I'm basically in every major asset class you could think of, except for hotels. Um, and then I'm in some non real estate stuff, too. Um, I do a little bit of hard money lending to flippers um, as well on the debt side. I haven't done any of that since last March of 2022 was the first month when the increased interest rates, that's when I stopped that. But I've been doing it since 09 and I'm going to go back to it once the housing market kind of resets and, and stabilizes. Um, but generally, a lot of it's in real estate with a little bit of in more cash flowing type businesses. Okay. And most people I know only invest in you know one, maybe two different asset classes. Uh, why are you more diversified? Yeah. You know, like what I tell people is that as a passive investor, and this is, you're not going to read this anywhere. This is my own opinion, but, and I'm not an investment advisor or anything, just my own opinion, but um, you, I trade control for diversification and as an act. So how I delineate active versus passive, and this is really important because there isn't a specific definition that everybody agrees on is that um, if I, so let's say I owned a portfolio of single family homes, 20, and I had a property manager managing them. I can make a decision as to which toilet to replace and for how much money. I can make a decision to refinance a loan, hire and fire a property manager, buy sell a property at any time, right? And I can reject tenants, et cetera. Well, that to me is all active, right? You actually have control. So to me, even though a lot of people consider owning those homes passive because you've got a, a property manager working on it for you, to me, it's active. So in giving up control to somebody 
Um, the way that I try to reduce risk, because you're increasing a risk when you give up control to somebody, right? There could be fraud, mismanagement, Ponzi scheme, all kinds of other things, even just buy and sell decisions you don't necessarily agree with because you don't have control. Uh, refinance decisions, all kinds of stuff. So in order to reduce that risk to an extent, I like to tell people I trade control for diversification across asset classes, geographies, and operators. And I feel like because I'm doing this full-time, if I'm not diversified across asset classes, and we can get into a lot of reasons why I think that's a good thing, then I'm actually not reducing some of the increased risk you have by being passive. And I'll just give you some quick examples about diversification across asset classes. Asset classes, it obviously varies by location and who's managing it and the type of asset and all this, but you know, like there are certain assets that do very well in an upturn and some assets to do better in a downturn to protect against a recession. There's even ways to invest within those assets to be either, um, you know, trying to take advantage of a cycle or being protective of a cycle. But all the asset classes tend to react differently. And so, you know, it's almost like the concept that you say, look, if I invest in one asset class, it's almost like I'm going to invest in one type of stock. I'm just going to invest in technology stocks. Well, you're subjecting yourself to higher risk because you're not properly diversified, right? Just theoretically. So that's how I look at it. And um, it's an important aspect of, of investing like this to me is being very highly diversified. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, based on where we are in the current Michael's market cycle, are there any particular asset classes you're excited about more than others? Yeah. So we're recording this, I think, in April of 2023, which is a very interesting time right now. We just had a couple of banks fail um, like a month or two ago. Everyone's wondering whether the Fed is going to only increase rates once more in May. So there's a lot going on right now, right? We everyone's well, everyone a large large number of people are expecting recession stuff in half, second half of the year. We don't know if that's going to come or not, or how that's going to look. There's a lot going on right now. So my general um, feeling at the moment is that I am mostly on the sidelines, except for very unique uh, prices and very unique opportunities. Uh, I'm not okay with current market rate deals because we've seen some asset classes go down in price over the past six to twelve months, and I think we've got further to go. I'm very concerned about rents reducing across most of the asset classes during a recession, which could reduce net operating or income and therefore reduce the value of a building. Um, we may end up having higher interest rates for longer than people expect. That's another risk, right? So there's a lot of different risks right now. So to me, I think that the cost benefit is very difficult to justify because I think within six months, I'm going to have a lot of these answers. And it's not a long time for me to wait in exchange for, you know, potentially taking a risk, right? So um, so I'm on, mostly on the sidelines. Um, there are certain asset classes I'm going to probably target over the next 10 years once the cycle resets. But we're kind of like, in my opinion, the first or second inning of a cycle reset. And we'll have to see how that plays out, especially with the Fed being as uh, intervening as it has been. It's uncertain to know how many innings this game is going to be. The Fed can decide that the game's over and the resets happen at any time, depending on quantitative eating, stimulus, et cetera. So we'll have to see. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I think patience is the name of the game right now. And I'm primarily in multi multifamily. So I know a lot of multifamily investors, and there are a fair number of people who are nearly in over their head right now with the interest rates and, and uh, you know, potential recession. So I expect there to be good buying opportunities in the future, but waiting for those to come is my strategy as well. Yeah, I think that it's still a little early as far as the real opportunities coming to your point. Um, unfortunately, the real estate market moves very slowly, unlike stocks. And so it's it's a lot of waiting for the right timing. And I always tell people in real estate, because it moves so slowly, it's technically better to be late than to be early. Because if you're late, you're not going to miss, like it's not going to just all of a sudden double in a year, right? But you're taking more risk by being too early than being too late, in my opinion. And so um, definitely merits watching things, but there's always unique opportunities out there. So 
it's not a question of doing nothing. It's a question of being ultra picky at the moment with the understanding that there's a lot of risks. And so market rate deals may not be the best idea at the moment. At least that's just one person's opinion. Yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. And then are your real estate investments primarily through syndication or REITs or, or funds or what? Yeah, great question. So um, I pretty much invest in, I think, mo always passive and mostly through syndications where they're just pulling a lot of people together, which includes individual assets and funds. Um, and so obviously there's good and bad aspects to that. Um, I get a lot of the tax benefits or so all the tax benefits that flow through pro rata to investors um, for a typical real estate deal, but there's a lack of liquidity. So it's a trade-off, right? Um, so, um, but I definitely invest primarily in syndications, almost fully in syndications. Real estate is all about adding value to other people. An easy way to do that is to share this podcast with someone you know who wants to do more passive real estate investing. Also, subscribe and leave a review. Now, let's get back to the episode. And then how do you find syndication sponsors with whom you want to invest? Yeah, that, that's definitely the hardest part here. Um, that's the challenge because even though there were certain laws enacted back in 2015 that allowed for more public marketing of opportunities to accredit investors in what's called the 506C structure, I find that often the sponsors use those structures just to protect themselves from avoiding a public solicitation uh, risk with investors. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that realistically, seven or eight out of 10 deals that I see that I seriously considered aren't publicly marketed, maybe even a higher percentage are not really publicly marketed. So what that means is that you have to network a lot. Um, you have to be very proactive if you want to be able to be very active in syndication um, uh, investing unless you're willing to invest through an intermediary. So that last comment I made was if you want to go direct to an operator or sponsor to invest directly with them. If you're willing to go through an intermediary because you don't have no interest in networking, you're too busy at work, you're too busy with your family, you know, et cetera, you can invest in crowdfunding portals. You can invest through investor groups who will pull investors together. And those entities are basically their profit model is that they will find opportunities and they take a portion of the profits or spread their middleman for finding and vetting opportunities. That adds a lot of value to people who don't have an interest in networking or who just don't have the time. Uh, but I personally do this full time. So I look directly for sponsors and there's just a lot of networking involved. Um, there's a lot of tools out there now, though, that makes it easier than it did when I first started in 2002. Boy, it was very different. Um, but you have podcasts you can listen to to kind of learn, uh, hear some sponsors and hear what they're like. Um, you have conferences that didn't exist until probably the mid 2010s that um, allow people to go and meet all kinds of sponsors and other investors and network with in one place very efficiently. Um, you have some online, a few select online investor groups that are literally uh, enable forum software. So you can actually post an opportunity, discuss it, see what other people are looking at all through private discussions um, and some other things too. So there, there's a lot you can do as an investor today to accelerate your networking that didn't exist before, um, which is very handy. But in the end of the day, I tell you that you really have to network a lot if you wanna be um, really not going through an intermediary, for example. And how can you tell whether or not a sponsor is going to do a good job with a particular asset? Well, you don't know for sure. And so the most you can do, which is what you have to do as a passive investor, do a lot of work up front, right? You do all the work up front, make a decision, and then the sponsors does their piece after once you make that investment. And so um, this is a long topic we can go through because this involves how do you look at how someone has uh, created um, projections and their underwriting assumptions? Do you agree with their business plan? How much experience do they have? Um, how much experience do they have in that market, in that asset class, et cetera? There's a lot of questions to ask. So high, high level to make this a little more simple. 
I always tell people, look, I'm a conservative person. I'm looking to match my personality to who I'm investing with and giving my money to who I'm giving control to. So I'm looking for someone who is um, conservative, who's using conservative projections, who's even possibly purposely, and I was speaking to a sponsor earlier today who does this, who is purposely using conservative projections to under-promise and over-deliver to build long-term relationships with investors who are going to want to reinvest with them and overperform. What I'm trying to avoid is sponsors who are overpromising, using great numbers, or using a business plan that I think is riskier than I'm comfortable with, and um, is perhaps even using a lot of really good online marketing, et cetera, to get the word out. But they don't really care because if I invest with them once and they underperform, then they're going to be able to move on to the next investor because they're a bit of a marketing machine. And that's what they set up, right? And then both of those exist, you should know. And so um, that is the best way I can describe what I'm trying to look for. Um, and so, um, it, it, there's a lot to go through with due diligence and stuff. I do background checks. Uh, that's mandatory. I always meet people in person at least once before investing with them. That's mandatory. Um, a lot we can talk about. It's a very long topic, but hopefully high level that made sense to people. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, I hear what you're saying about being picky, not only with the deals, but also really picky with the sponsors as well. You know, there, as syndication has become more popular, there's more people coming into the space maybe some of them know what they're doing and some of them really don't. So there's been a lot of people the past couple of years that have been, I think, overly aggressive. Yeah. And I want to say that um, two things. First is, I know this is going to sound bad, but it, unfortunately it's reality. If someone's brand new and they're looking to raise funds, um, it's probably not a good fit for me because I really don't want someone to learn off my money, which is what they would be doing, right? Because that's how they're building their experience. So your risk is higher for the same quality of asset by doing that. Now, Sometimes those people will give a better return profile, better splits, have higher projected returns because they're not going to keep as much of the profit. And you have to decide individually if that makes sense for you or not, right? So that's um, that's one challenge for sure that you have to watch out for. Um, I'm blanking on the other thing I was going to say, so maybe it'll come back to me. I apologize. That's all right. I'll add one more caveat for that. Uh, if you're investing with a new person, but they're part of a team who has a proven track record and has you know been through the ringer, you know, as they say, that might be okay because then you're there that person is is weighing off the experience of their team yeah and and it's a great point because i actually oversimplify what i said to be honest like if somebody worked at with a sponsor or was a partner at a sponsor or just even like one rung below a partner at a sponsor team for 10 years or 5 years or seven, whatever the number of years is and they know the business in and out and they go start their own thing yeah that's a whole different ball game than someone who is just starting their own company out of scratch because they left their job, which I actually see, those are both real. I see both of those all the time. And so absolutely, that's totally different consideration set for sure. Um, I would say though that, well, I remember what I was gonna say the other thing, which is that, um, again, my own opinion, but I consider who I'm making a bet on even more important than the actual property itself, not by a lot, but still I think in first position just behind the property itself because I'm giving up that control, right? And so it's so important to assess who you're making a bet on and get comfortable with that as well as the property clearly, but it, it's ultra important when you're a passive investor. Yeah. I had another guy on here, uh, Mark, uh, who said that you bet on the jockey, not the horse. Yes, that is very true. And, um, very important when you're giving someone control. Indeed. Uh, what's the problem that you've encountered with a real estate investment and how was it handled? So, um, I will give you guys a really fascinating, unique example. Um, because, um, it has a lot of lessons and it's very unusual. So it's going to take a couple of minutes, but bear with me because it's very interesting. So um, 2005, 2008, I sat on the sidelines for the most part, kept telling people there was going to be a housing crash. Honestly, everybody thought I was crazy. I was very young and it was very frustrating. It was a very long haul to wait. 
So 2008, January, I get a student housing opportunity sent to me by an experienced sponsor who had already owned 17 different student housing properties. And what's interesting about that sponsor is that they'd only raise money on a couple of them, most of them they own themselves, right? But they want to keep expanding. So they're pretty high net worth. So my thesis at the time was I'm expecting a recession, but people go back to school during recession. So, you know, in the right location with the right sponsor, we're going to do really well. It's going to be fine. So I invest in this property first across from a first property across from a state university uh, campus in a uh, large, large uh, um, school in Michigan in January of 08. It was a very unique deal. There was a loan assumption, four years remaining, fixed rate loan. And we got a really good deal because of that, also because things were kind of getting a little dicey in terms of the economy, et cetera. So fast forward four years, we do fantastically during, you know, we're 100% occupied all the way through as expected. And then, so that loan was coming due actually in the fall of 2012, hopefully my timing's right. So in January of 2012, um, the city who, um, where the property was, sends a notice to the owner as well as to all the residents saying, and this is like a 303 unit building, a large building. They send a notice saying, hey students, um, we have to close the bridge to campus that you walk on to get to campus this summer uh, to do repairs because of the weather, right? Because that's when we could do the repairs. But don't worry, it's going to be open by the time you come back to get to school, you'll be able to walk to school. So what happens is that um, the occupancy rate goes from 100% to 65% because of the fact that students are worried that the bridge won't be open in time, okay? And so that was domino number one, right? Um, domino number two was at the bank. So the sponsor approaches the bank and said, hey, our loan's due in the fall. We won't be able to refi under the current numbers because of the fact that, you know, that we're going to deal with 65% occupancy for one year, but don't worry, it's going to be back at 100 next year because there was all these repairs. So domino number two, which is really fascinating, is that while a bank doesn't normally do this, bank said, sorry, we're not going to send the loan for a year, you know, because they wanted the property. It was a fantastic property. So we actually ended up foreclosed. Only foreclosure I think I've ever been in and I can remember. And actually, ironically, the only foreclosure that, was, that wasn't even a result of the last downturn, right? It was just a random occurrence. Um, but here's what's really unique about the story, which is that um, the sponsor had partial recourse on the loan, lost a couple million dollars. Um, and then the sponsor felt really bad for the investor. So without anybody asking for this, they actually took our equity and transferred it to another property they own as a first property across from another state university in Texas they own without any investors. And so um, they literally took the hit on the partial recourse loan. They actually gave up their equity or partial equity in another property they own to make investors whole. This was a one-year transition as far as legal and taxes that, you know, no cash flow for a year. But I'm still in that deal today and it's still doing really well in the one we got transferred to. And so even though I was in one foreclosure, you know, this past 20 plus years, it actually didn't end up with me resulting in a, a partial or full loss, which is really strange. So there's a lot of lessons there, though, really important lessons. And it's a very unique story, right? So number one is we talked about this before. Who I made a bet on was key because they had no legal obligation or I don't even think any moral obligation to make investors whole, given what happened, because this is one of those what I call 1% risks that can occur when you invest in real estate. I can tell you 20 ways any deal can go bad. Building burns down, insurance won't pay, you fight them in court for four years, you lose, you have to come out of pocket for the legal fees, you know, so I can go on and on about, right, these what I call 1% risks. And by the way, fraud, mismanagement, policy scheme, all 1% risks, right? So you can never get it down to 0%. But what's fascinating is that this sponsor felt bad for people, had the net worth to do this, and proactively chose to actually make investors whole, so to speak, right? Very unusual, but it was all about who I made a bet on.
Um, and what's so fascinating too, is that this sponsor could have a billion dollar net worth, but choose not to make investors whole. They actually made that choice on top of it all, right? So interesting lesson is sometimes it's actually good to invest with higher net worth sponsors because, and I've seen this before in other occasions, they can do a short-term bridge loan to a property. They can kind of fix some financial problems that other sponsors may not be able to afford to do. So that's kind of, I'm not saying you have to go out and only invest with high net worth sponsors, but it's a plus, right? And I personally experienced that. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, so many lessons there about like 1% risks. You never know what's going to happen. That's why it's important to be diversified. Uh, who you're making a bet on is probably the most important thing. And now I'm still in great standing today. Sorry, it was a long story. No worries. Uh, and I'm sure you're more than willing to invest with that sponsor again. Yeah. And everybody always says that after, and it's very true. Um, I just have utmost respect and thankful for that sponsor. Um, and uh, I love sharing that story because it's such a unique outcome, but it really goes to show you some important learnings, you know? Excellent. All right. Are you ready for a speed round? Absolutely. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? Uh, passive cash flow, no doubt. And what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? I didn't understand at the beginning, especially because I had a W-2 paycheck, how amazing some of the tax benefits are and how much of a difference it can pay in terms of your general tax rate, how favorable it is, and how the world works as far as why people who are working like I was uh, over 10 years in the corporate world are getting taxed so high, why, why entrepreneurs are getting taxed at such a low rate. I'm not saying it's fair, but I wish I would have known that because it would have made me even more excited about this space when I started. Very good. What's a book that you can recommend to other investors? Yeah, so I recommend two books um, in this order um, because they're the same author. So if you've never read Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, strongly recommend it. But I'd also recommend reading Cashflow Quadrant in that order. Um, they overlap a little in topic, but I feel like reading both of those in that order is really good and, and is even better than just reading the first one alone. Yeah, both excellent books. How can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way to reach me and anyone's welcome to to, to reach me um, or reach out. I'm happy to help anybody. If you're new, just trying to figure out the space. If you're experienced, you want to network. If you're an operator, you have opportunities. Um, I'm happy to network with anybody, help anyone any way I can. So my email is the best way to reach me, which is jroll, J-R-O-L-L at roll investments, R-O-L-L investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? One more thing, you know, if you're just starting investing and you haven't been in this for long, or even if you've been in this just for a couple of years, be very careful right now. I think a lot of newer investors don't understand that rents go down in a recession often, and that's a risk. Um, be very careful to understand that real estate moves slowly. And so if you think you've already seen the worst of bank failures and other things, probability is that's not happened yet. And we've not seen the worst of this. And so, um, yes, the Fed could come in and change things for sure. But if you want to be conservative, be extremely careful right now while also recognizing that there's probably going to be some fantastic opportunities coming up in the next 12 to 24 months. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Jeremy, and have a great rest of your day. Absolutely. Thanks for everyone for listening. Hopefully this was helpful for you. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.